We'll put that uh, insurance card there on the back table if anybody needs that. Well, I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 19. You say, well, aren't we in Romans? No, we're taking a break from Romans just for a couple weeks to get us through the Christmas season. And usually this time of year we do a couple messages at least dealing with the Savior's birth. And so uh, this morning I want you to turn your hearts to Luke chapter 19. And this is a story that we're all probably very, very familiar with. Uh, It's a story of a small little man, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And he climbed into the tree, as you know, to see Jesus. And um, Jesus actually went to his home and uh, brought salvation to that household, the Bible says. It's a very familiar Sunday school story, and a lot of us are very familiar with it. But I pray that uh, with Christmas on the way, I want to speak to you why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? Come to this earth. And so follow along as we read from our Bibles there in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. It says, speaking of Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because... He was small in stature, so he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. And then verse 10. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Wonderful text of scripture. So much more than just a little Sunday school story. Um, And this morning we want to kind of look into this. I think today as you approach Christmas day and Christmas season, we see in news, we see in magazines... Pictures of Jesus, pictures of the nativity. And a lot of people ask the question, why did Jesus come to earth? See, isn't not enough just to know who Jesus is? I mean, most people know who Jesus is. If you ask the common person on the street who is Jesus, they would be able to tell you some sort of story about Jesus. By and large, by and large the world knows what Christians believe about Jesus. We've made that pretty plain. But the world wants to know this. Why did he come? And who cares? What's the difference? 
And a lot of people try to answer that question in a very uh, sordid kind of way. Some argue that Jesus came to give us an example of God's love. Others say that he came to be this perfect man, this God-man, the one shining example that can lift some of us up out of our muck and mire. If you ask a lot of people, they'll say, you know what, he was the greatest teacher of all time. Some others believe that he came to start some new religion. But Jesus himself, from the very lips of our Savior, we see here in verse 10, he tells us why he came. We don't have to wonder, we don't have to guess. It's a very familiar passage to us, Luke 19.10. And in one simple Sentence. We have the, the most basic statement about the mission of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 10, For the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, here is Zacchaeus, this tax collector. And this verse summarizes for him the mission of our Lord. Um, The very reason why he came. I mean, if you stop and think about this, God actually created everything we see around us. The universe. Then he created the earth. And then on the earth, he created the human race. You and I. And out of the human race... He wants to seek and to save lost sinners. That's his own everlasting joy and glory. That's what it's all about. So what's going on on earth right now can be kind of disconcerting at times. You read the newspaper, you hear about terrorism, you hear about shootings, you hear about all this stuff. It's true that all this should be a concern to us. But don't think for one second that God has lost control. He hasn't. He's in perfect control. And he's working all these things together for his purpose and his plan. Now, when you think about creation, you think about the handiwork of God. You think about beautiful scenery, whether it's the Grand Canyon or the Tetons or Lake Tahoe the Sierras, whatever it might be, the beach. And you step back and you go, wow, what a wonderful God to make all this for us. And it truly does collectively manifest his power and his glory and the glory of the whole Godhead. But the reason for all of that is not just to put God on display. That's not just the reason. He just didn't say, oh, you know what, I want to show off to everybody. I'm going to create all this stuff so they can sit back and go, wow, you're just an incredible God. He did so that he might rescue a group of sinners who would gather around him in heaven one day for his glory. See, you have to understand, he could never be worshipped for his mercy. He could never be worshipped for his compassion. He could never even be worshipped for his sympathy and his forgiveness and his grace and even his salvation. 
if he had not allowed somehow this thing to develop the way it did. Sin was allowed to take place so that all of the issues surrounding our salvation could come to one ultimate glorifying praise to him. Why is the universe here? Why are we here on earth? The answer is so that God might for his own eternal joy and glory seek and to save lost sinners. That's what Jesus himself said. And it helps us keep things in perspective. I mean, I understand the concern with all these refugees coming to America who haven't been vetted and all that. It's obviously a security risk. But you know what? God has a plan. And if we can't take the gospel to them, maybe they'll bring, maybe he's bringing them to us. I don't know. But it's being allowed to happen. And we have to look at this through spiritual eyes. See, it's the nature of God to save, beloved. That's the nature of our God. In the New Testament, God is called our Savior, God our Savior, over and over and over again. It's repeated, particularly in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. In John chapter 4, verse 42, it says, There it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, speaking of Jesus, the Savior of the world. That Jesus Christ is the Savior. First Timothy 4.10. Paul writes, he says, For the, to this end we toil, we strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. God is the Savior of all men. There is no other Savior. If you're going to be saved, you have to come through Christ. He's not only the Savior spiritually and eternally to those who believe, that verse says, but he's also the Savior physically. He's the Savior temporarily, even to those who don't believe. The fact that sinners, as soon as they sin, don't just get zapped and go to hell is a gracious thing on the hand of God. He allows them to live out their life here on earth. He would be totally righteous in just sending them to glory right there. Sending them to the other side. I shouldn't say glory because the sinner doesn't go to glory. They go to hell. But he doesn't do that. He practices what we call common grace. He delivers that sinner even temporarily and physically from all the immediate consequences of their sin. God sets aside his holy wrath, his judgment, and his righteous vengeance in order to demonstrate his tolerance and his patience. Which is manifested through his mercy and grace. I understand times are hard, and boy, I hear Christians all the time, boy, I just wish Jesus would come back. I find myself saying that at times. But then again, I stop and say, wait a minute, I know some people who aren't believers yet. I know some people that still need to hear the gospel. See, we can't get so comfortable in our 
elective Calvinistic theology that we just sit back and say, well, God's going to work everything out. It's none of our business. Don't worry about it. No. He tells us to go out into a lost and dying world and share the gospel so that those whom he has chosen, when they hear it, they will be saved. So God is by nature, beloved, a savior. And that's why he came. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes, All things are from God who has reconciled us. In other words, he's brought us back. And we have the ministry of reconciliation of, of, as believers. We go out into a lost and dying world and we share the gospel. Hopefully that some would believe and be reconciled to the creator. Throughout the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah and other places, Isaiah 45 especially, over and over we hear God of Israel, the Savior. It's not just a New Testament thing. It's found throughout the Bible. By nature, God is a saving God. And God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, into this world, as it says in verse 10 there, to what? To seek, to save that which is lost. Well, this story of Zacchaeus is kind of interesting because before we get to verse 10, you've got to at least give a little perspective. And so let's look, first of all, at the sinner, Zacchaeus himself. He's the one who's lost in this case. His name is Zacchaeus. He lives in a town called Jericho. And back then, it was a very well-known place. It was economically strong, socially strong, a lot of things going on. If you go over there today, there's nothing there, basically. It's just a wasteland. But it tells us that it was a notable place in Scripture during that time. And he was the, what you might call the chief tax collector. He wasn't a tax collector like Matthew. He was like Matthew's boss. <laughs> okay, he had several tax collectors under him. He kind of had a franchise on tax collecting. And he probably scrimped and saved and staved up enough for this little franchise and said, okay, you know what, I'm going to start hiring people to go out and to take money from my fellow Jews by order of the Roman government. And you know what? I'm going to basically give Rome what they, what they deserve. And the tax collector wasn't known as someone who was honest. So if the tax was 10%, he probably charged 15 And they had to pay it because he was a tax collector. He would take the 10 give it to Rome, and take the 5 and put it in his pocket. So he was a very wealthy man, the Bible says. And probably part of his wealth was done by a legitimate business, but also tax collectors were known for their just illegitimate behavior. They were constantly trying to get more money from the people than even the Roman government wanted, because that's how they got paid. And by these means, he became very rich. But at the same time, you can only imagine, the Jews didn't like to be taxed by the Roman people. And here's one of their brethren, Zacchaeus, taking their money for a government that they felt they were under the thumb of. Can you sense a little bit of resentment there? They didn't really care for Zacchaeus or any tax collector, especially someone who became wealthy on doing something that they thought shouldn't have been done. So he was very rich. He was also very 
despised in the community. It's kind of like the the election that's going on now, even among the Republican Party, you see people rising to the top who have no background in politics. Why? Because people are sick of politicians. Right? They're just sick. You know, I mean, I think you could have Mickey Mouse running for president. If he wasn't a politician, he'd probably get elected. I mean, that's really at the point where we're at. And so politicians are despised today. Well, it's the same thing for a tax collector, even worse. They were considered a traitor. They couldn't go to the synagogue and worship, so they were closed away from their religion. They couldn't interact with other people because nobody wanted to be around them. Anybody who would welcome Zacchaeus into their home would be shunned by everybody. It'd be like dealing with a traitor. He couldn't have fellowship. He couldn't eat a meal. He was totally isolated from his countrymen. Basically surrounded by a bunch of thugs who probably protected him because he probably needed protection. That's the kind of guy he was. He was a man and he was a sinner. It's funny how we look at our Lord and we think of how holy he was and how perfect he was and yet so much of his time here on earth were spent with people like Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 7, verse 34, the people of Jesus' day called him the friend of tax collectors and sinners. In Luke chapter 5, it tells us that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to what? To repentance. It was this righteous, self-righteous people of Jesus' day who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They thought, we don't want to hear this man. They wouldn't listen to his message. Who listened to his message? It was the the down and outers. It was the people on the low side of the totem pole. The social outcasts. They listened to him because they had nowhere else to go. They were forsaken. Back in Chapter 18, if you look through there, you see Jesus healing two blind beggars. I mean, there was something about their culture in the day. If you saw somebody who was blind, they were deemed unclean. Because why else would God make them blind? That's what their thinking was. Their thinking back then was, if you get sick, you did something wrong. And here's Jesus reached out, he healed, and he saved these two blind beggars. So the sentiment in the people's day of Jesus' time were already kind of against him. They were already turning against him, even despite his miracles. They said, man, who would associate with these kind of people? And just so you understand, the tax collectors were underneath the beggars (laughs) as far as the social class. They were even lower than the beggars. They were worse off. So here comes Jesus into this respectable town saves three people, three people who were at the bottom of the social ladder, the scum of society. Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise 
according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, when God reaches out and he saves people, he's always reaching out to those who are sinners. He's always reaching out to the outcast, to the lowly people. The destitute, in desperation, in isolation, feeling alienated from society. Well, this tax collector, Zacchaeus, this sinner was one of those. He had lots of money. He had lots of power. But we see here in verse 2, there was a problem. He was rich. He was a tax collector. He wanted, in verse 3, it says, to seek Jesus, see who he was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small stature. I don't know how small Zacchaeus was, but he must have been pretty small because Jews, basically, in general, are not big people. They're not tall. And he was probably shorter than most Now, remember, it's Passover season. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of traffic going on. There's a lot of crowds going on. Jesus, there's just throngs of people around him. And for whatever reason, this man had a curiosity about Christ. He wanted to see, it says, who Jesus was. But he couldn't. He was on the wrong side of the equation. Big crowd, small man. Just doesn't work out. So he put his intellect to work, and it says in verse 4 that he ran ahead. He knew where they would go. There's probably one main thoroughfare through Jericho. And so as they're going down there, he couldn't see. You can see him kind of hopping over the crowd, the hedge, you know, in the back. And Now think about it. This is a tax collector. Most of these people don't like these guys. So if he's in a crowd of people, he's a small little man, and he's despised by everybody. You can just imagine him in the back of the crowd. Hey, can I see, you know, oh, Zacchaeus, you know, oh, oh, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to work his way through the crowd. You know, they're elbowing him and kicking him, pushing him out of the way, you know, go home. You traitor. They didn't want him there. So after a while, he realizes, you know what, this isn't going to work out. I'm not going to be able to see this Jesus that they're talking about. So he figures, you know what? I know where they're going to go. They're going to go down here around, go around the corner. So he ran down the street, found a nice sycamore tree, it says. He climbed up in the sycamore tree. And these trees over there, they kind of go up and they branch out kind of like a small oak tree, you might say. And so maybe the branches were hanging over the street. Big tree, little man, good combination. He scoots right up there, hiding probably back in the, the foliage a little bit. I mean, can you imagine yourself doing that? 
Think we have a, if we had a parade down in Redwood City and you couldn't see the parade. I mean, would you as a grown man who owns a business go down the street and climb up in the tree and hang out over the parade? When they, I mean, every, think, people are looking at you. What's this fool doing? That's not a, a real good thing to do if you want respect by people. And yet that's exactly what he did. Because he knew Jesus was about to pass by. So he kind of had to humiliate himself, this dignified, rich, wealthy tax collector, had to lose all sense of decorum, all sense of dignity and honor. And here he is sitting over this parade that's following Jesus, about to pass by up in this tree, hiding back in the leaves, hoping probably nobody sees him. Well, that's the sinner. But look at what happens next in the story. We meet the Savior. In verse 5, it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. I mean, think about it. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be the center of attention, which is kind of weird because what I do, but I, I don't like to be the center of attention. And I can just imagine... Zacchaeus hanging out up in this tree with all the foliage around him and he's kind of hiding back and he's, Jesus is coming down the street with all these thousands of people around him. And he's thinking, ah, this is going to work great. And the procession's going and all of a sudden Jesus stops. Hey, <laughs> what are you doing up there? Wow. He not only just stopped and looked up, but he actually spoke to Zacchaeus. He spoke to him. Listen what he says. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus shows up. The Savior shows up. He reaches this place. And it says that he looks up. He says to Zacchaeus, I mean, think about it. Zacchaeus never met Jesus, right? He never met him. He was just there to kind of observe. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus down the street. He looks up. He says, hey, Zacchaeus. <laughs> Wouldn't that be shocking? If you just ran into somebody and they walk up to you, hey, Steve Converse, how you doing? Do I know you? No. <laughs> wow. Who told you my name? That would just be shocking. Never met Jesus, a perfect stranger, and yet the Lord knew his name. And some people say, well, he probably knew his name because he was a tax collector, well-known. And well, He knew his name because he was God. I mean, it's kind of common sense. You don't have to explain this away, right? He made contact with him. He called him by name. And I don't know what Zacchaeus was thinking at this point, but he probably thought, man, this is an interesting situation. I came here to see Jesus. Now he's talking to me. He says, hurry and come down to where today I must stay at your house. It's interesting because when you look at the original language here, there's a lot of imperatives here. First, Jesus says, I must. I mean, which we may think is kind of rude. But this is Jesus you're talking about. 
He didn't say, hey, Zacchaeus, you mind if I come over for dinner? No, he said, you know what? Zacchaeus, get down here. I'm coming to your house for dinner. He didn't give him an option. It's necessary. Well, why was it necessary? Why did Jesus invite himself? Why did he say, I must come to your house? Because it's a divine, sovereign plan that's being carried out. It's divine timing. He says, I must stay at your house today. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, today, right now. Behold, Zacchaeus, today is the day of salvation. (laughs) You're going to totally understand who I am in a little bit. See, what was determined in eternity past, what was determined in the counsel of God before anything was created is about to come into reality for Zacchaeus. Hurry up and come down here because I'm going to stay at your house. Now, he didn't whisper it. Remember, there's all these people around. I'm sure he had to shout it. Right? He didn't say, Zacchaeus, come to your house. No. Hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I got to stay at your house today. Bold statement to make. He said it publicly. What was that? That was just blew the minds of those, even those who were following Jesus. They probably thought, wait a minute, I don't think Jesus knows who this guy is. I mean, he's the chief tax collector. Everybody hates this guy. Why is he going to his house? That doesn't make any sense. This isn't going to work out for the PR the, of the campaign here, Jesus. You know, you can't hang around with people like this. This isn't going to make you look good. If they thought he was the Messiah, if they thought he was a man of God, if they thought that he was a prophet of God, if they thought that somehow Jesus was holy and righteous, if they had any thinking at all along that line, they would have been shocked when Jesus made this statement. Not only did he go to the house, but he actually... Ate a meal. That's kind of implied. You come over, you're going to have, you're going to have a, a meal. And it was, may have even, some language scholars say it may have been an overnight stay. It wasn't like I'm just going to pop in, you know, like the politicians do. They pop into some business and, you know, eat a donut or whatever and get a picture and, you know, act like they're part of the common folk. And then they go back to their caviar and whatever they eat. But, you know, that, that's not the way Jesus did it. No, he, he went to Zacchaeus' house and he, he probably spent the night there. And they were stunned when he said he was going to do this. And it says in verse 6, So he hurried, Zacchaeus did, and came down and received him joyfully. Sure, think about it. Nobody else would. (laughs) Everybody hated this guy. And all of a sudden, the Lord of Lords comes, and Zacchaeus is just there kind of, in his mind, probably like just checking things out. And all of a sudden, the parade stops. Zacchaeus I'm coming over to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus is probably like, yeah, all right. You know, he gets down and the little guy, you know, he's probably got his chest pumped out. Yeah, come on, Jesus. You're coming to my house. Look who's coming to my house. See?
Some people said that Zacchaeus came just because he was curious. No. I think he had some sort of supernatural interest in who Jesus was that maybe he didn't even get. He responds with joy because he's got some things going on in his heart. Why? Because God's working on his heart. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, God chose Zacchaeus to be one of his children. And now is the day of salvation. He's isolated. He's alienated. He has no relationships with anybody. And here, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, is inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house to spend the night. I'm sure he begins to feel the weight, maybe, of some of the things that he had done as a tax collector. I bet you God, through his spirit, began to convict Zacchaeus' heart. I mean, he can't go to worship. He can't go to the temple. He can't have an offering offered for him for his sin that he knew. I mean, that was common of these kind of folks. Even the publican, when Jesus dealt with the the story of the Pharisee and the publican, you remember, the publican goes to the temple and says, God, please apply this atonement to me. Because he wasn't allowed in there. They were outcasts. So here is Zacchaeus. He's ready. He's willing. He's saying, hey, yeah, you can come over for dinner. Spend the night. Look at verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who? The crowd. The people that were following Jesus. The self-righteous religious folks of Jesus' day. They weren't grumbling because they weren't. Jesus wasn't coming to their house necessarily. They were grumbling because he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I mean, sometimes we have to remind ourselves from where we have come, beloved, because you know what? We can get that same attitude in our heart. We can get that same attitude about those who are lost and sinners out in the world, oh, those dirty, filthy people. Keep them away from me. They smell. They say bad words. They don't act in a way that's honoring to God. And we so many times look upon them with condemnation, judgment. And yet, Jesus and the Bible tells us, you know what? That's where we came from. Except by the grace of God. That's where we were at. And you know what? The Pharisees in the crowd probably fermented this whole thing. They probably, look at what he's doing now. Look at what your guy's doing now. Because they didn't like Jesus anyway. Although Zacchaeus here was a true sinner, 
not really speaking of that, it's speaking of the category of, of society that he belonged to, a tax collector. He hung around with Satan's people. <laughs> he hung around with people who didn't go to temple. He hung around with thugs. So when they saw Jesus embrace this sinner, verse 7 says they began to grumble. But Jesus says, you know what? I'm coming. (laughs) Well, look at what happens. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. He took a stand. Zacchaeus took a stand. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything... Remember, in the original language, that word if can also be translated since. (laughs) And that's really the idea here. He's not posing a question. Well, I don't know if I ripped anybody off or not. No, he's saying, I ripped off lots of people, Lord. And because of that, I'm going to restore it fourfold. Which was a lot more than what he needed to do according to the law. I mean, here is this man, beloved, who's a professional thief. He's an extortionist. Now he becomes an instant philanthropist. (laughs) You've got a man who's spent his whole life taking money from his brothers. You've got a man who's defined by selfishness. Now he's acting absolutely in an unselfish way. He's took his whole life. Now he wants to give. What happened? The Lord transformed this man. We don't know where it happened. We don't know how it happened. We're not told what Jesus told him. The word of God doesn't contain that. I think it doesn't contain that because you know what we would do? We would just take that and turn it into another formula. Oh, here's how you have to do it. Isn't it interesting when the Lord encounters people and they get saved, the part of the conversation where Jesus is actually relating to them their need of salvation and they're saying, yes, I want to be saved, is kind of left out. We don't have the words Jesus said. Well, let me tell you, four four basic principles, you know. God loves you and has a wonderful... No, We're not told any of that. We're not told that Jesus, at the end of the little conversation, after he explained who he was and why he came and talked about Zacchaeus' need for repentance, and that Jesus, even though he hadn't done it yet, was going to pay the price for his sin, and that he needed to put his faith and trust in him for salvation, in him alone, if he wanted the horrendous guilt of all the stuff that he had done wrong to go away and to be forgiven... We're not told how Jesus related that to him. But obviously he did. We know that Jesus had conversations about repentance, about the kingdom, about salvation, about eternal life. 
It's interesting that he's here to seek out Zacchaeus. And yet Zacchaeus thought he was seeking out Jesus. That's how it happens, isn't it? Jesus is always seeking us out. He always is desiring those whom he has, before the foundation of the world, chosen to be his. He comes and he transforms their lives, it says. Jesus knows when the salvation comes. We, we might not always know. Some people say, would you know the day and hour and second you were saved? Well, some people do, some people don't. See, the key point is, have you seen a change in your life? Is there a real transformation? Because if there's not a real transformation, if you're just playing church every week, and you're just kind of trying to hold yourself up by your bootstraps, that's not salvation. That's religiosity. That's self-righteousness. That's not going to pass muster in the end. And so he has his transformation. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make it right. In verse 9, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. And you notice that he has stood and he said... To the Lord, behold, Lord. He didn't say, hey, Jesus. No, he, he called him Lord. And I think he fully understood what it meant when he said it. Because God had quickened his heart to understand what it meant. When you call Jesus Lord, it, it doesn't mean anything other than you're not Lord anymore. You've given that right over to him. That you're willing to bow at his feet. You're willing to do what he says. It's not your plan anymore. It's not your agenda. Someone the other day, we were talking in, uh, I don't know if it was at uh, Dudley's Memorial or something. And we were just talking about, you know, this church and the history of the church. And and, uh, they asked when I came here and I told them. And they said, you know... uh, And I I made this comment. I said, you know, I'll probably be here till the day I die. And he said, well, what if God doesn't have that in the plans? I said, what do you mean? I said, you know something? I don't know. He said, no, but what what if God wants you to go somewhere else? Wow. There we go. Because that's what God would want me to do. Because he's my Lord. It's not about me. It's not about my plans. It's about understanding that we are in subjection to Christ. So we see that salvation truly has come to this house. And verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. First thing I see here quickly, and this is in your outline, we have the most magnificent historical fact that the Son of Man came. Jesus has come to earth. The Almighty God has entered our world. The infinite 
has become finite. The eternal has evaded time. And the incarnation is God in human flesh. We sing the the song, Emmanuel, God with us. See, his birth differs from every other birth that he voluntarily came in obedience to the Father's will. He voluntarily did this. I don't know about you, but when I was born, I had no choice in the matter. I was born in Williamsport, Pennsylvania in 1960, May 25th, to James and Dorothy Converse, who had already a slew of children, eight other children. But you know what? I didn't have any say in it. I didn't say, oh, good, I was born last, or, well, I wanted to be born first. I had no say in it. I'm here by the choice of my parents. But see, Jesus came according to the plan of God. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son. Every detail was minutely planned in the courts of heaven. Nothing happened by chance. He came from light into darkness. He came from splendor into squalor. He came from purity into a world filled with sin. But you know what? He still came. And not just any man has come. It says the Son of Man has come. Not some angel, not some extraterrestrial ET being or something like that. The term the Son of Man emphasizes is Jesus' humanity. He came as a man. He entered the human race in the form of a tiny little baby. He's the Son of Man because he was first the Son of God. In John 1.14 it says, And the Word became flesh. And tabernacled his tent of flesh. He put it down here among us. C.S. Lewis put this doctrine in proper perspective this way. He says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares the way for this or results from it. Without the incarnation, you don't have anything, beloved. I mean, sometimes we focus on other things. How did Jesus turn the water into wine? How did he heal the people? How did he do this? How did he walk on water? And sometimes that becomes a distraction from the central truth that we believe that God became man. That's the central truth of our faith. Without that, we don't have a faith. See, that's the point at which we part company with Islam. That's the part, the point that we part company with Judaism, that we believe God could become man, and he did so in the form of Jesus Christ. For us Christians, it's impossible to speak about God without speaking about Jesus. Why? Because God became man. Every other miracle leads to the incarnation or results from it. The heart of our faith is a central truth. God has come down to us in the person of Jesus. Now, secondly, you see here that we also have the most spiritually significant mission. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save. You know, Jesus came looking for something. Or should I say someone? What's our Lord like? He's like the woman in the Gospels who lost the coin. 
and searched her house until she found it. Uh, He's like the man who lost one sheep and went out into the wilderness to find it. He's like the father who welcomed home his prodigal son. He came seeking sinners. Even a sinner up a tree. (laughs) Jesus came seeking those caught in adultery. He came seeking blind beggars. He came seeking lepers. Wild men living in the tombs. He came seeking all of them. He even came seeking self-righteous Pharisees who thought they didn't need him. He came seeking fishermen and politicians and radicals and physicians and tax collectors and rich men at the top of the heap and poor folks who were totally at the bottom. He sought out prostitutes and drunkards. And you know what? They loved him for it. And when he was dying, beloved, when he was dying his own death on a cruel cross, he came seeking one hanging on the cross beside him. Jesus came as a seeking Savior. Third thing here, we have the most perfect description of the state of humanity. It says here in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what? What was lost? That describes us. That describes all of humanity. The word lost almost isn't even used in Christian circles anymore. We talk about being estranged from God or being confused about our purpose in life or needing a new beginning. It's hard to improve on this simple word. If someone is not in Christ, what are they? They're lost. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to pick up the daily daily paper or magazine and realize that men are lost. There's sin all around us. What does it mean to be lost? I remember one time we were hiking. I was young in the woods and we got lost. Me and my friend. And at first we kind of thought, well, we're familiar. We'll get and it started to get dark. And we were lost. I mean, we literally just got discombobulated. We, we didn't know where we were going. And it wasn't for after the darkness we saw the light of the city. We, we would have been out there for days, I think. If you've ever been lost, you know that gut feeling. Or if you've ever lost anyone. I thought I lost my grandkids a couple times. And boy, my heart just stops when you're out doing something, you know. The Bible says that in Isaiah 53, 6, we all have strayed like sheep. Each one of us has gone our own way. We're all nature. We go our own way. We don't like to go with the crowd. We don't like to go follow what the Lord wants. We want to do our own thing. There's an important principle to consider here. If Christ did not come to us, listen, if Christ did not come to us, we would have never come to him. Ever. If we say seek the Lord, let us also recall that by nature no one truly seeks the Lord. Romans 3.11. Harry Ironside tells the story of a newly converted brother who gave his testimony at a Wednesday night Bible study. And the new convert gave this great story and testimony and glory to God for his salvation. And after the meeting, an older gentleman wiser brother supposedly took the young man aside and said you know what that was an excellent testimony but you left one thing out he said what's that 
He said, you left out your part in salvation. The new convert thought for a moment, and then he replied this, my part in salvation was to run from God as fast as I could, and the Lord's part was to run after me, find me, and save me. We don't have any part in our salvation. We were lost until Jesus found us. Sometimes we encourage sinners to come to Christ, which is entirely biblical, by the way. But if Jesus does not first come to us, we would never come to him. That's what it means to be truly lost, lost without God, lost without hope, lost in the tangled web of sin, lost and trapped forever with an eternity in hell waiting. If you neglect the truth that you know to be true about Jesus, the Bible says that you will be condemned in hell forever. And that verse, verse 10, tells us very clearly, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, because of that, what's this mean? If Christ came, man's responsibilities increased. See, in the spiritual realm of the greater Privilege requires a greater responsibility. Luke 12, 48 says, to, much, to whom much is given, from him much will be required. If Jesus had never come to earth, we would all go to hell condemned by our own guilty conscience. If God did nothing, the whole human race would perish. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. But that's not the situation. Because Jesus has come to earth and he has made God plain to us. He left his heaven, his home, to come down and to live among us. In him, in Jesus, we see God's love, his mercy, his kindness, his justice, his holiness. He came to show us the grace and the truth. And what did we do to him? We crucified him. After seeing his words and his miracles and listening to his voice, they considered his offer and they put him to death. They crucified the Lord of glory. We know all about Jesus because we've heard the story over and over ad nauseum. What will happen to us if we know about Jesus and still refuse him? What will be our end if, having heard the truth, we yet neglect it. The scriptural answer is simple. If we neglect Jesus after we know the truth, we will be condemned to hell forever. Here's a frightening fact, and it's a statement to be true. The same gospel that saves a man will also condemn him. The very same gospel. You look at the sun in the sky. To one planet brings life, to the other it brings death. Secondly, if Jesus came to save, then the sinner is without excuse. What excuse could you give that would satisfy God? Oh, I didn't feel like trusting. I didn't understand. I didn't know. There's no excuse. We've all seen the verse at ball games. We've all seen it on TV and everywhere else. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
We love that verse, but we fail to go to verse 18 where it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Listen, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's condemned already. That's the state of the whole human race. They're condemned. Sometimes we like to refer, oh, yeah, that guy, he's a good guy. No, he's not. The sinner, just like you and I are sinners. Sin has infected your mind, your emotions, your will, your intellect, your moral reasoning, your decision-making, your words, and your deeds. No part of your life is exempt from the debilitating factor of and effects of sin. Someone said this, if sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. <laughs> you might be different shades of blue, but you're all sinful. We all are. That's why sinners need salvation. They don't need reformation. They need forgiveness. They don't need lectures on morality. They need a new life, not a new leaf. What sinners need, Jesus came to provide. Think of that hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if Jesus came to save the lost, last point will close, then the word the, the worst may be saved. You know what? To be real frank and to be real transparent and to be real honest, we all have a thousand skeletons rattling around in our closets. Going to church in and of itself is not enough to keep a man or a woman from grievous sin. You never know what sin you may commit or might not commit. Don't ever feel confident in your ability to smite sin. Because the moment you feel confident, beloved, that's when sin has you. And it reaches out and it bites you. Things are rarely what they seem to be. I mean, you look around the room, it looks like a wonderful group of folks. But you know what? If God could somehow reveal what's in our heart at times, we would be shamed beyond belief. That's just being honest. Reminded of a British novelist who remarked that there is no man who, if all his thoughts were made public, would not deserve hanging 12 times a day. And someone responded and said, only 12 times? <laughs> Luke 19.10 puts no limits on the grace of God, beloved. Corey Tenboom said this, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. You may... Come to church without Jesus. 
but you don't have to leave here without him. You may have come filled with guilt, but you can go home forgiven. You may walk through these doors feeling dirty and burdened by your sin. You can go home feeling clean and cleansed by his sacrifice. That's the true power of the gospel. God has more grace in his heart, beloved, than you have sin in your life. Or to put it another way, Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we pray that we would truly understand that it's only for your glory that you save us. We're all adrift in the same boat. We're all apart from the grace of God, and that boat is going down quickly. But the good news is, is that, you know what, Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. We're all under a terrible sense of, of sin that we commit each and every week. And yet, your grace is sufficient. Your grace pardons us. The one hymn, to God be the glory, says, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Father, we thank you for sending your son to seek and to save that which is lost. Thank you for those in this room who have been transformed by your grace. We pray for those who have not yet experienced that. I pray that you would have them to cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, show me the truth of what this man is saying here this morning. That there is no other Savior other than Jesus. That I need to put my faith, my trust, I need to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Turn from my sin and turn to Christ. He will save you. He promises that. Father, as we leave these, this building today, I pray that we would look at this world who's lost and dying and sinful I pray that our hearts would go out with compassion and words of forgiveness and grace and hope and love that we would be able to share the gospel message this time of the year as like no other. That somehow we could turn all the frenzy of the holiday season into a time of honoring and giving glory to you for your gift of salvation to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.